true kingship is achieved by those who approximate themselves to the King of Kings. And God, we know, prefers the earnest prayers from within the hearts of his people, as well as the cries from within the shofar. He prefers these to all the jewels of the tower, for God is a king who is anointed with our tears and crowned with our cries. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 179, The Shofar and the Crown of Prayer. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. In the first season of the TV series The Crown, the young Queen Elizabeth is preparing for her coronation. The imperial crown is brought in by the crown jeweler. She puts it on. She feels the symbol of continuity that it embodies. She knows that she needs to walk with it at the ceremony. And so she says to the jeweler, do you suppose I could borrow it for a couple of days, just to practice? And the jeweler, astonished, says, borrow it, ma'am. From whom? If it's not yours, whose is it? The scene can perhaps inspire us to consider crowns and coronations from a Jewish perspective. And interestingly, it is a prophet that appears to speak about an entirely different subject that allows us to better understand the biblical approach to coronations and thereby our relationship with God himself. The book of Joel is named for a prophet that, according to many, lived during the first temple period. His small book, for the most part, describes a veritable plague about to descend upon Israel, locusts that will destroy the entirety of its agricultural abundance. In several verses, Joel seeks to inspire Israel to cry out to God in repentance, seeking salvation. Chapter 1, verse 13. Gird yourselves and lament, ye priests. Wail, ye ministers of the altar. Come, lie all night in sackcloth, ye ministers of my God. For the meat offering and the drink offering is withholden from the house of your God. Sanctify a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry unto the Lord. Alas for the day! For the day of the Lord is at hand, and as a destruction from the Almighty shall it come. Cry out to the Lord. This is the prophet's exhortation. Then Joel describes an ancient instrument to be used in order to sound the alarm about the doom descending, making clear thereby that this horn is the ultimate approximation of the human cry, and that this is why the shofar is sounded at a moment of crisis. Its raw blast is the ultimate wail. Chapter 2, verse 1. Blow ye the shofar in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand. A day of darkness and of gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness, as the morning spread upon the mountains. A great people and a strong, there hath not been ever the like, neither shall be any more after it, even to the years of many generations. The shofar is the alarm of Israel, the cry of Israel. God, we say on Rosh Hashanah, is shomea kol churat amo Yisrael berachamim. He hears the broken wail of the shofar in magnificent mercy. The different sounds of the shofar, according to the Talmud, are themselves meant to imitate different human cries. The note known as shvarim is genuche ganach, a groan. Teruah is yelule yalil, a wail. For Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik, we end Yom Kippur with the shofar blast as well because it is that, more even than our verbal prayers, that can express a reaching out to God. And in truth, Joel emphasizes that the shofar is itself central to the fast day and is meant to be joined with our own weeping. Thus, chapter 2 returns to the animal horn in verse 15. Blow the shofar in Zion, sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, and those that nurse at the breast. Let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber and the bride out of her canopy. Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep between the vestibule and the altar, and let them say, Spare thy people, O Lord, 
and give not thine heritage to reproach, that the Gentiles should rule over them. Why should they say among the people, where is their God? Then the Lord will be jealous for his land and pity his people. This, then, is the biblical use of a shofar. It is an instrument of wailing, of crying to God, of alarm. But we also know, ladies and gentlemen, that the shofar is a coronation instrument. This can be seen from the anointing of Solomon, where, as we learned, the shofar was blown in order to mark his reign. Thus, the verse in the book of Kings, And Zadok the priest took a horn of oil out of the tent and anointed Solomon, and they blew the shofar, and all the people said, Long live King Solomon. Would not a trumpet be more fitting for the coronation of a king? Would we not expect something more akin to Handel's royal fireworks music or water music? The answer it would seem is no. We coronate kings with a shofar precisely because we cry to God with the shofar, and the human king is called to imitate God himself. And if we blow the shofar on Rosh Hashanah and annually proclaim God king on that day, it is because the almighty monarch of Israel and all the world prefers to join majesty and love. He is coronated with our cries, highlighting thereby his concern for us. Thus, the Midrash tells us, Amar Rabbi Pinchas Rabbi Phineas says, Bisha'asha Yisrael mitpalalin, when Jewish communities pray, they do not do so all at once. Rather, the Midrash continues, Hakneset hazot hakneset First one synagogue prays, then another. But when all conclude their services, then the Midrash continues, Hamalach hamemunal hatfilot, the angel appointed over prayers, takes all of their cries, all of the words that were uttered, creates a crown from them, v'notnan b'rosho shal hakadosh baruchu, and that crown is placed on the head of the Almighty. The shofar is both the shrill, desperate cry of the book of Joel and the coronation instrument of the book of Kings. It gives a raw, wailing intonation, unlike trumpets utilized in Handel's works, but that tells us that coronation is not meant to be about splendor, but about something else entirely. And this can be seen as well in the biblical anointing of kings. In reading up on the British coronation ceremony, I learned something new. Almost every object utilized in the ritual is not that old, because most of them were lost, sold away after Cromwell executed Charles I. The spoon that is utilized for anointing is, according to what I've read, the oldest object used in the crowning of English kings. That spoon from the pre-Charles I era was found because a yeoman of Charles I bought it and held on to it. Thus, the invaluable website Atlas Obscura tells us, quote, anointing a monarch with holy oil once confirmed the ruler's divinity. In England, the practice dates back to around 9th century, but the tradition, as the royal collection says, derives from the anointing of the Jewish king Solomon by Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet. When the British monarchy was reestablished in 1661, the state recreated the crowns and other objects that had been destroyed, and Mr. Kinnersley returned the coronation spoon to the new king, Charles II. At that time, the spoon received extra decoration, small pearls lining the handle. Since then, it's been used in the coronation ceremonies for English monarchs, who are no longer considered divine themselves, but do have an important religious role to play as the head of the Church of England. Many monarchies have abandoned the practice of elaborate coronation ceremonies, but the United Kingdom has stuck with this medieval ritual and the objects that go along with it, end quote. It is an elaborate golden spoon, then, that ties the ceremony to the past. But here, ladies and gentlemen, is the twist that British tradition, I think, has missed. Anointing is actually, for the Bible, not supposed to come from a beautiful metal object. The rabbis note that when a vessel formed by human hands was utilized to anoint kings, the monarchy was not successful. Thus Saul was anointed with oil from a flask of Samuel. A flask is a human creation. With David, however, the oil of anointing was kept in a horn. The same, as we just cited, can be said for Zadok's anointing of Solomon. To put it slightly differently, for the Bible, the source of true, enduring royalty came from inside a horn, inside a shofar.
And this is significant. The interior of the shofar is the source from where true monarchies are anointed, in order perhaps to emphasize that the interior of the shofar is the source of royalty itself. True kingship is achieved by those who approximate themselves to the king of kings. And God, we know, prefers the earnest prayers from within the hearts of his people, as well as the cries from within the shofar. He prefers these to all the jewels of the tower, for God is a king who is anointed with our tears and crowned with our cries. To coronate God with the shofar on Rosh Hashanah is to emphasize that as fearful as we are of the Almighty, as much as we may speak of the high holy days as days of awe, God nevertheless as king highlights that he hears our cries and that his royalty is reflected in his relationship with us. And if the shofar is utilized in the biblical coronation of human beings, it is because we seek to remind those monarchs to glorify themselves first and foremost in their love for their subjects. For this is how God chooses to be glorified. Thus, Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik, as we have previously noted, very famously recounted how his Hasidic teacher in Cheder, in his Eastern European school, described his vision of Rosh Hashanah, which the teacher called Koronatianacht, or Coronation Night. Rabbi Soloveitchik said, quote, When I learned in Cheder and Yeshiva as a child in the village of Chaslavich, a day before the Yamam Norayim, the High Holidays, one could recognize in my teacher an unaccustomed feeling and joy. We students were very amazed at this until our teacher said to us, Do you know what tomorrow evening is? Tomorrow we begin the days of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, and among Hasidim the night is called Karanatzianacht, when we place a crown on the head of God, so to speak. And do you know who places the crown? Yankel the tailor and Beryl the shoemaker. And Rabbi Soloveitchik added, Over the years I have said many sermons and written many discourses on the concepts of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur but nothing ever made me feel the theme of the holidays as the words of that teacher, end quote. It is therefore, I think, no coincidence that these verses from Joel about the shofar are, in the Ashkenazic liturgical tradition, appended to the verses from Hosea that we have previously discussed, and also read on Shabbat Shuvah, the Sabbath of return, the Sabbath between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. On Rosh Hashanah we crown God with the shofar, and on the Sabbath that follows, on the Sabbath preceding the Day of Atonement, in reading Joel's description of the shofar blown on fast days, we are reminded to make our cries match those of the shofar so that the angel can create a crown of the cries that pour forth. A fascinating contrast thus emerges between two visions of coronations. Elizabeth, in the series The Crown, is told about her crown. Borrow it. If it is not yours, whose is it? But in Judaism, for the Midrash, astonishingly, this is reversed. God owns all the world, but he borrows his crown and his crown jewels from our mouths and hearts as long as the shofar represents what we feel and say, as long as the shofar of Joel parallels our prayers, and as long as we remember what royalty for the Tanakh truly is. This is Mayor Salavechik, looking forward to learning together tomorrow, signing off.